You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. On July 13th, 1980, John Piper preached his first sermon as the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, which many of you know is our mother church, planted us almost six years ago. And in that message, John quoted from a longtime Baptist pastor in Dallas, Texas, a man named W.A. Criswell. He was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas from 1944 until 1993, almost 50 years. This is the quote from Criswell in that first message by Pastor Piper. When a man goes to church, He often hears a preacher in the pulpit rehash everything that he's read in the editorials, the newspapers, and the magazines. On the TV commentaries, he hears that same stuff over again, yawns, and goes out and plays golf on Sunday. When a man comes to church, actually what he is saying to you is this, preacher, I know what the TV commentator has to say. I hear him every day. I know what the editorial writer has to say. I read it every day. I know what the magazines have to say. I read them every week. Preacher, what I want to know is, does God have anything to say? If God has something to say, tell us what it is. Preacher, tell us what God has to say. We don't need your take on the latest news and the latest trends. We can read the editorials and the commentaries for ourselves. We're not here for that this morning. We're here for God, to hear from him. Preacher, don't give us your opinions. I know many of you would echo that. Tell us what God has to say. So this morning, we come to a sacred text for preaching. And perhaps this is the quintessential tell us what God has to say passage. As far as I know, there is nothing quite like, quite like verse one in all the Bible. I don't know that any biblical command, like verse two, gets the preamble that we get in verse one. Look at verse one again. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and kingdom, preach the word. I count five intensifications at least in that preamble. I charge you. This is solemn language. It's like somebody testifying under oath or it's a declaration backed by sacred authority in the presence of God. God is witness. He's watching. I'm giving you this solemn charge, Timothy. I may be gone soon. God will not. Of Christ Jesus, your Savior, your Lord, your greatest treasure, the second person of the Godhead who became man like us to save us, who is to judge the living and the dead, Take this charge with utter seriousness. Christ 
the judge, will hold you accountable. And by his appearing in his kingdom, he is coming back. He will establish his kingdom. Your preaching of the truth, no matter what resistance you faced, will be vindicated. The word of God will not fail. Christ is returning to fulfill it. And all that by way of preamble to verse 2. This is, if, if there's any moment here where Paul says, Timothy, whatever else you might miss, don't miss this. Like, that's what's going on in verse 1. The charge can't get any larger here. The stakes cannot get any higher. This is the emotional apex of the letter of 2 Timothy. And we might even say this is the high point in all of Paul's relationship to Timothy. These are Paul's last recorded words here in the book of 2 Timothy. And beginning with chapter 3, verse 14, as we looked at last week, and running through chapter 4, verse 8, which Josiah just read, is Paul's final flourish for Timothy and for the world. And at the heart of it, as the climax of the letter, is three words. Preach the word. Sounded all like Jesus' parting words to Peter. Remember that? He did it three times. Feed my sheep, Peter. Preach the word, Timothy. Now I'm aware, as I stand here in this pulpit, assigned to preach this text to you, that very few in this room are preachers. All of you are sermon listeners. Not all are sermon givers. And Paul here is talking to Timothy as a preacher. And yet, personal as this letter may be to Timothy, this is not a private letter. Paul means for the whole church to hear this. So this is not just a pastor's conference passage, as popular as this passage might be in pastor's conferences. This is a whole congregation passage. So that's how I'd like for us to frame it this morning. Frame it as a church to the church. Or as a church to our pastors indirectly. And even though I say maybe 95% of you will never preach the word, on a Sunday morning, and frankly, you have no aspiration to do so, you do care about preaching. It affects your life in a very practical way every week, like right now. Well, you're not doing anything else. You're sitting here listening to preaching. So let's consider how this instruction from the Apostle Paul to a preacher lands on us as a congregation. So based on this passage, what should we as a church want in and expect of our pastors in their preaching? I want to highlight three needs in particular from these verses. And the first relates to the world. The second relates to the word. And the third relates to the reward. So world, word, reward. As a church, we need preaching that will, number one, 
make us wise to the lies of the world. We need preaching that will make us wise to the lies of the world. Verses 3 and 4. And one of the reasons for this is the great deceptions in each generation are often the ones that are not obvious. Now they may have been obvious in the past, but some compromise or change in the recent past has made them less obviously deceptive and problematic in the present. So preachers need to help with this. Look at verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You may remember throughout our studies here, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, we've seen this phrase, sound teaching or healthy teaching before. We saw back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, that sound doctrine, healthy teaching, is in accordance with the gospel of the blessed God. Healthy teaching, formed and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, produces healthy spiritual lives. And bad teaching produces lives that are unhealthy. It has bad effects. It ruins lives. Good as it may seem at first, it makes miserable in the end. And through preaching his word, God means to rescue people from wandering into the cancers of unhealthy teachings. Have you ever thought about this expression, itching ears? Very, very odd expression. Ears are designed to let sound in into the mind, into the heart. But those who are not enduring healthy teaching, which goes into the ears and instructs and convicts, they want their ears tickled. Just a light touch. Just a pleasant scratch on the lobe, please. No challenging words down into the ears. Just a tickle, por favor. And they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Earlier this fall, we paraphrased this. You may remember as they curate feeds for themselves to suit their own passions. Verse 3 is remarkably relevant today. I'm not even sure what it meant 2,000 years ago. What did it look like to accumulate for yourselves teachers 2,000 years ago? All sorts of guest rooms in the house? Like, what would it even mean then? Now, a hundred years ago, I get that. A hundred years ago, you would buy their books and put in a subscription to their periodicals. Today, how do we accumulate teachers that stroke our own sinful passions rather than communicate to us God's passions? You click follow, subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Read the book. Listen on Audible. Just hit play while you drive, clean, and exercise. Pastor Joe rang the bell for this two weeks ago. And then Kenny did as well last Sunday. And so at the risk of saying too much about it, 
I think verses three and four are just too spot on for us right now to not say it one more time. Brothers and sisters, who is in your ear? If you audit your feeds, your podcasts, your library, your apps, your shows, what teachers have you accumulated for yourself and what will be the effect of their voice on you over time? And don't think entertainment is not teaching. Do you expose yourself to words that will pierce your ears with truth or tickle them with myths? Do they challenge your sinful passions or suit them? And positively, these devices, our screens, can be used for much good. These can be great instruments for accessing truth. Notice the process here in verses three to four. First, they grow weary with healthy teaching. And then they accumulate for themselves new teachers that fit their emerging passions. And then verse four, they turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And the stark contrast here is between truth on the one hand and myths on the other, healthy teaching versus unhealthy. But what's so subtle is that this is a journey that is taken one small step at a time. The move from truth to myths is so informal, it's so conversational, so unthreatening, it's so easy. And that's been the surprising thing we've seen about the false teaching here in 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 16, Paul calls it irreverent babble. Chapter 2, verse 23, foolish, ignorant controversies. And are we not surrounded today by babble and foolish, ignorant controversies? But we need to ask, who are these people Paul's talking about in verses 3 and 4? Are these people out there in the world or are these people in here in the church? And one clue is the word for at the beginning of verse 3. Paul tells Timothy, verse 2, preach the word. I think implied there to the church. This is in the context of corporate worship. For, he says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. In other words, Timothy, people in your church right now, they receive the healthy teaching right now, but they may not always. They may not endure. And that's what it would mean to turn away. There's another clue as to who this is talking about. They're turning away. They were there. They were in the church. They're in this room right now with us. Not just in Timothy's day. With us now. But Paul has a plan. Somebody's got a plan. <laughs> We've heard about plans. Somebody need to have a plan. Paul's got a plan. To keep that wandering from happening, Paul charges Timothy to preach the word now. Don't let up. Be vigilant. Don't coast. Preaching today 
keeps people saved tomorrow. Don't go soft on your preaching, Timothy. City's church. So first there's preaching in relation to the world. Ongoing, week in, week out preaching keeps us from slowly sliding into and being lost to the world. So number one, the world. Number two, the word. We need preachers who will, number two, tell us what God has to say. This is verses two and five. We need preachers who will tell us what God has to say. Let's read verse one again and then two and five. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse five, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So preach the word, we said, is the emotional apex of the letter. And so let's ask, what does it mean to preach? And what does Paul mean by the word? Two main questions here in number two. What does it mean to preach? What does Paul mean by the word? The word for preach here means to proclaim or to herald. It's like a town crier. Familiar with the town crier? Before there were screens and radio and newspaper, news would travel to a town and the town crier would keep everyone apprised. He would stand up in the street, perhaps he would ring a bell, and he would lift up his voice and say, what? Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. And then he waits for people to quiet down because there's no amplification, no microphones. You gotta wait for people to quiet down, You you need quiet. He lifts up his voice and he declares the news. And a good town crier backs it up with his body language and his voice with appropriate volume and with the right sense of urgency about his message. What then is the word that's to be heralded, to be proclaimed? Throughout Paul's letter, this phrase, the word, typically means the word about Jesus or the gospel. His life, his death, his resurrection, the gospel word. And here in 2 Timothy, this passage follows immediately upon what we just saw last week in verse 15 of chapter 3, where Paul refers to the sacred writings. And verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. And then bam, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. There's no break there. He goes right into it. Preach that word. So we have scripture, the sacred writings, which Paul says are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's not saying preach the Old Testament apart from the coming of Christ, nor is he saying preach Christ apart from the written scriptures. It's not either or. So we might say we preach the gospel from the scriptures. Or we might say we preach scripture in light of the gospel. Or we might just say we preach the word. Christ himself is the word of God, John chapter 1. And the gospel is often referred to in the New Testament as the word of God. And the scriptures, 
Old Testament and New are the Word of God. So we preach the Word, God's Word, His Son, His Gospel, His Revelation. We preach that Word, not our opinions, not our stories, not trends, not politics, not life hacks, not pop psychology. We preach God's word in Christ, in the gospel, in the scriptures. In other words, preacher, tell us what God has to say. Which is a lot of hard work. It is far easier to preach what seems cool, trendy, well-received, and it's just your preference to talk about. But Paul said in chapter 2, verse 15 of this letter to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker, worker, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Preaching your opinions and stories And trends and politics and life hacks and pop psychology is far easier than preaching God's word. And the next thing that Paul says after preach the word is be ready in season and out of season. Faithful preaching is not just hard work and it's not something that you just up and do, it is a lifestyle. It is a lifelong project. There is a sense in which all your life to this point goes into every sermon that you bring to God's people. Then Paul gives three words for what kinds of voices Timothy should have in his preaching. Look at that. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Paul uses this word reprove in 1 Timothy 5.20. This is what you do to bad elders. Reprove them. Correct them. Titus 1.9. Reprove those who contradict sound teaching. Titus 1.13. To the false teachers. Reprove them. Correct them. And then there's the word rebuke. Which seems to be largely overlapping with reprove. But perhaps rebuke is more strong. It's more confrontational. If reprove is more corrective, rebuke may be more confrontive. And then he says the word exhort. I think it would be a, I think it'd be a good translation here to say encourage here. I think he means to fill out the picture. What he started with reprove, rebuke. I think now he's complementing that with exhort or encourage. Encourage is a very common word in the New Testament. And it fills out this picture of what preaching does. And to encourage is different than to rebuke. (laughs) And to encourage is also different than to command. Encourage often means to come alongside somebody and to point them to something. Try to get next to them, get into their heart, get through their ear, get them going in that direction rather than just raw submission and obedience to a command. Hebrews is a great example of this. How often when you say encourage, you talk about one another. 
Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another every day. Hebrews 12.25, 10.25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Or you say brother. Hebrews 13.22, I appeal to you, encourage you, brothers. So we have reprove and rebuke on one side. And we have encourage as a complimentary word on the other. Which is why... John Calvin said that preachers need to have two voices. All right, brothers, you hear this? Two voices. You have two voices. One to correct. One to encourage. One stings. The other inspires. One challenges. The other cheers. We wound and we heal. Two voices, one that is corrective, confrontive, reproving, rebuking, and one that is constructive, winsome, encouraging. Preaching includes both, just as the scriptures include both. And then comes, it's the last thing in point number two here, the most surprising phrase, I think, in the passage if not the whole letter. Did you see this coming? He says, with complete patience and teaching. Complete patience. Not no patience. And not a little patience or extensive patience. Complete patience and teaching. Do you remember where we saw the words teaching and patience together in this letter at the end of chapter 2 two weeks ago at the end of chapter 2 verses 24 to 25 and Paul's talking about the Lord's servant he says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness And then the only other place in the New Testament where that word able to teach shows up again is in the elder qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so often people will ask there about this this qualification of able to teach. What does it mean that the pastor elders in the church must be able to teach? Does it mean that he's able in terms of serviceable? He can teach if he's got to, but he'd prefer not to. Or does it mean he's able in the sense that he's he's effective as a teacher? He's an able teacher. You might say it that way. I think it's more the latter. But the connection with patience in chapter 2, verses 24, shows us that this is not just an outward gifting or an outward ability, but there is also an inward. There's a temperamental component to being able to teach Something that pairs with kindness, gentleness, patience. There's a a proclivity, an inclination in the heart. It's one thing to be a teacher in practice. It's nothing to be a teacher at heart. Good teachers see possibilities in people. Good teachers are hopeful. They don't assume that people are what they are and will not change. 
and now I render a final verdict on that person. Rather, teachers want to influence. They want to inform people. They want to present the facts. They want to win people. They want to give motivation. They want to teach people and change people, not simply judge them where they're at and write them off. And Paul says, that's essential in the elders of the church. And that's essential in preaching. Not only do we rebuke and reprove, we also encourage. And we do so with complete patience in teaching. The essential point of verse 5 then is Timothy, endure. Don't go soft on your preaching. Don't let up. Keep preaching and teaching in season and out with patience. Challenge and cheer. Tell them what God has to say. Open to the next passage and keep going even when there's resistance. So act and so say it as though it is what it is. Good. So the world, the word, and now finally the reward. We need pastors who will keep pointing us to the reward. This is verses six to eight. Keep pointing us to the reward. Look at six to eight. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So the four at the beginning of verse six means that Paul is encouraging Timothy to keep going, keep preaching. Don't let up. Paul's time is coming to an end. Time for my departure has come, he says. And just like Jesus said, feed my sheep to Peter, and Paul says, preach the word. So Jesus said, it is finished. And this is as close as we have in Paul of a statement where he says, I have finished the race. I I love how Paul keeps his head in this moment. That's one way you could translate that word sober-minded. Keep your head, Timothy. And let me show you how I keep my head. Okay, they're about to take his head off in Rome. And Paul is not gloomy. He's upbeat. One commentator says, his demeanor is not frantic or fatalistic, but composed and in harmony with an ancient tradition among God's people, sacrifice, even self-sacrifice, with confident in God, confidence in God for the outcome. And then now, in verse 8, at the end here, just as in verse 1, Paul turns again to Christ as the final judge, which is good news to Paul and to Timothy and to us, who are in Christ and terrifying to those who wander away. Christ is coming back with all authority and with sovereign power. And when he does, he will right every wrong. Justice in this age 
as much as we work for it and as much as we pray for it will not be perfect and complete in this life. But one day, true justice will be done fully and finally, once and for all, when the judge returns and he will get the glory of being the one who has brought full and final justice. And Jesus will reward his people who have endured under healthy teaching. Not just Paul. Paul says, and not only me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So as we come here to the table, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that your pastors want to keep pointing you to the reward. We want you to be wise to the lies of the world. And we want to tell you week in and week out as best as we can discern what God has to say in his word. And when Christ appears, we want you to love his appearing. And so we pray, God do it. And the way that God does it is through means. He gives his church his word. And he gives his church pastors. And he gives his church the preaching of the word. And he gives us his table to remind us that Christ, the word, has indeed come and given his own body and blood for us. And he has given himself to be a means of his grace. The preaching of his word that keeps us and this table that keeps us as we eat and drink in faith. So if you're here with us this morning and you claim Christ's blood and his body for you, we invite you to eat with us. If not, have it pass as the pastors come to you. You can just put your hand out like this. As you know, we'll try to do it COVID friendly. And we'll hand it to you both at the same time. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.